do our children find themselves under increasing pressure in the footballing world? Is the unrealistic ambition to reach the Premier League driving them out of the beautiful game? Do they find themselves having to compete and train to such an extent that they no longer enjoy football? Are teams now so competitive that players just do not get enough time on the pitch? All of these questions and more will be discussed in this week's episode by me, Andy Glover, and my regular co-host, Mark Grinter. And we are joined by a guest expert to ask the question, is there too much pressure in the world of grassroots youth football? And perhaps, most importantly of all, what happened to our original theme tune? Good evening everyone, I'm Andy Glover and I'm joined as usual by Mark. Hello Mark. Good evening, how are you? Okay. We are also joined tonight by a member of Fight Club JFC with his own experiences in youth football and in a moment I will hand over to him to introduce himself properly but for now we have James Linden. Hello James. Hi Andy. Now, James has a vast knowledge of the world of grassroots football and so I'll hand over to him to introduce himself properly and just give us a brief overview of his experience. So, if I can come to James. Thanks Andy. Um, so, I've been coaching grassroots football um, as long as I've been a parent in grassroots football really. So, my son Theo, who you know quite well because his first experience of football was with you guys when he was aged about, well, about three or four something. Um, Quite a long time ago he's 17 now so you know over over 10 years ago 13 14 years ago he came down to fries i brought him along because we just moved to canesham and uh he enjoyed that he actually we moved away from fries not long after because we'd moved to a house that bordered on canesham town so another local grassroots club just from pure convenience perspective that was right on our door so we would walk over and he had some friends from his class that went so um, at that point, I kind of got involved with the coaching of that team pretty much straight away just to help out, as most dads or, or a lot of parents will you know, want to get involved. And I say dads, it usually is because they you know, want to kick a ball around and what have you. But, um, and from there, I kind of you know, got into the coaching journey, um, started doing my coaching badges, uh, supported by Cainsham Town. Um, and you know, I, I could go into detail, but my my um, my middle son then got into football as well. And between the two of them, I ended up coaching a couple of teams at Cainsham, as well as being involved with the county team, uh, Bath and Wiltshire boys. And from there, I just kind of got the bug really, and ended up, you know, going down the rabbit hole of all, all of the FA kind of coaching, but but really much wider than that, and just trying to learn as much as I could, so that initially just to be the best grassroots parent I could be but it, the, the whole thing spiralled really from there and you know once you get into we got into the county um, team was a, it was a level of sort of additional to the grassroots kind of scene um, and then my sons both joined Bristol Rovers uh, not long after that I guess as academy players and, and then it was very much sort of I carried on coaching but I was sort of seeing it from a third lens uh, as an academy parent as well so and today I'm now really enjoying coaching with Mark here at Fry's, um, coaching our, our daughters and you know, and there's another lens seeing it through a parent for the third time, but now it's girls football and right back to the youngest age groups and grassroots. So I've kind of come full circle for the third time and um, yeah, going through it all over again and absolutely loving it, but has seen a lot over the years. Okay, brilliant. Yes, you, you took Theo, but I'm not bitter. You took my best player. <laughs> That's absolutely fine. Um, in case anyone is in, it can hear any background noises tonight, we are actually recording in Summerdale Pavilion, which is the, the, the club of, the, of where we actually play. So, um, so first of all, uh, talk about some sponsorship. If anyone is interested in sponsoring the podcast, then you can get in contact with us by email on greengreengrassroots at gmail.com. You're also able to go via the club website, www.fiveclubjfc.co.uk, through the Facebook page, Five Club Junior FC, or contact us on Twitter, at Five Club JFC. 
So I'd like to start by looking at a poll that I came across, which examines some of the main reasons children get disengaged and leave football. Key indicators were, it's too competitive, there's too much emphasis on winning, too much pressure to perform, children are afraid to make mistakes, a perceived lack of competence, there's not enough individual playing time, it's no longer fun, and they're not interested in football anymore thanks to other interests. So the question which has long consumed the FA is how to arrest this decline in numbers and retain that level of interest and enthusiasm. One we covered last episode was the Silent Support Weekend initiative. Now Mark and I discussed this from an unacceptable behaviour point of view which you can listen to in the previous podcast. However the origins of this weekend is actually to alleviate pressure on the children playing. To quote the FA, The aim is to reduce pressure on youth players at grassroots level and give them a better opportunity and environment to find their own voice, improve their on-pitch communication skills, develop their own game and most importantly have fun. Across the National Silent Support Weekend, we're encouraging coaches and spectators to show their support by applauding good play from both teams but refraining from talking or shouting. This is to create an enjoyable, safe and developmental experience for all youth players so they can play the game with freedom, without pressure and without an overemphasis on winning at all costs. So, without pressure, what do we think about the Silent Support Weekend? Without the pressure and without the parents and the coaches shouting was beneficial. I still my own feeling for the kids at, our, at a younger age group it still didn't work because they but, still need a bit of but we're talking about the, the pressure not the unacceptable behaviour not the, not the coaching side the purely pressure side what, does, it, does it work from that side so you're not they're not having any pressure on them or anything at all it's just go out there play learn their own way which is good and it, I think could potentially it, it is good for them for certain Individuals, it is fantastic for probably 80-90% of you, you kids that play football if that's what they want and a lot of the pressure comes from the coaches comes from the parents and half the time certainly I'd imagine up to I think under 10s under 11s half of them would come off the pitch and say what was the score because they, they haven't got a Scooby Doo they don't know if they've won if they, they, I think we had some in our when we lost I think one game about 10-0 and they thought they'd, cut, they'd won didn't have, didn't have a clue, so so it is that pressure that you know is put on. So that in that aspect is a good thing, um, and it is all about them learning and developing at a certain age. Yeah, I, I would I would I would agree completely. And the the pressure bit is really interesting because um, if if you've ever done anything where somebody is telling you what to do you'll know inherently that they're just making it harder. If you're in the minute trying to perform, and a good example is I was giving Theo a driving lesson earlier, and I kept telling him to go more gently on the clutch, and the more I told him to go more gently on the clutch, the more he froze, and he stalled the car about three times when he hasn't before. So that that's what happens on a football pitch when we are constantly telling the players what to do. And it, you might not even be shouting, you might just be giving verbal commentary but I think the big thing about it is not just that it's more enjoyable for the kids to not have somebody telling them what to do. They will actually learn um, to make decisions for themselves quicker and more effectively than if you have a joystick coach or a joystick parent telling them what to do. And that's, I think that's the big thing. It's not just the pressure, but actually to, be, to make them effectively better or to make them better more effectively, it's better to be quiet and to let them make decisions. You can talk to them before the game at half time and after but whilst they're trying to perform people need space to just go ahead and play and, and, and do it and if they make a mistake because you haven't they haven't spotted that they're, you know, they've not marked up or you know then that, that's for a reflection after the game practice the following week and, uh, and correct it again without direction without pressure and, and for us to find ways as coaches to kind of help them but to, when they're performing when they're playing just give them the freedom to, to get on with it can there be an age limit on this because at a certain point they they are now too competitive they don't want this 
they just want to win you know at, at some yeah. point five six seven eight they just want, you know, they want to learn they're just happy to go out there and learn make their own mistakes under 15s that we are at if we said go out there we're not going to give you direction they lost and they they felt it's because they weren't getting the direction they'd, they'd be gutted and mad at the, you, the weekend so the, is the question it, it does winning become more important at a particular time or does having direction and coaching that that is more immediate become more important as they get older I, I would say yes it does you know the older they get for sure you know results might be a factor in getting the best out of your players but again I'll give a good example so AFC Wimbledon's academy uh, under 18s level so these are the boys preparing to get pro contracts um, introduced something a couple of years ago where they they actually let the um, they have no coach weekend so for, for the weekend of a match day and this is a competitive league in a cap two academy for boys trying to become professionals they let the boys lead absolutely everything from the the prep the weekend the night before to um, sorting the travel and getting to the game the, I think a coach goes but they literally will do nothing from the minute the boys are kind of you know, set off, the boys will set set up their own warm up. They'll set up their tactics. They'll manage the in game substitutions as well. So I think they still have leadership within that. They'll nominate a cap, the captain or a couple of players, um, and then they'll debrief after. So that's an example. And and, and AFC Wimbledon is a very good academy, and they are truly sticking to that m- mantra. They don't do it every week, by the way. They they but they are they know the value in having people who can make. Uh, players who can make decisions under pressure for themselves or collectively as a group because on the pitch the only people that can actually do that are the players really rather than the coaches but I do agree that as you get older certainly talking your way you know and and offering advice to players is more valuable but I would say I think you're talking about 14-15 before it becomes important but it's interesting you raise academies there because you're talking about the elite level players even at youth football and is it because they are wanting them to learn by their own mistakes or is it because they're actually looking for the leaders on the pitch I, I think I think they're looking to, to let, yeah they're looking for the boys who can um, who can handle pressure and respond in, in the minute and in the moment um, but I think they also have you know I've heard, I've heard the coaches talking about it and they recognise the fact that they there's research and, and their experience tells them that actually just the barrage of information during a game actually doesn't help, and you could go up again another level, and and this is these are boys who are open to to hearing or, or players that are open to hearing advice because they want to make a career out of it. You know, if you're talking about grassroots teams, then you might as well you know take that way back down the scale. But you can even look at like the top professional teams, and there's definitely professional football players out there who respond better when coaches aren't constantly harassing them and the level of kind of pressure that comes from the touchline from coaches varies so like you think about Jose Mourinho when he was at Man United absolutely berating Luke Shaw all the way through a game from minute naught to the last minute and the more he did it the worse Luke Shaw played a couple of years later Luke Shaw's now the England left back and is one of Man United's best players I would say so because managers have given it you know step back other players might need it but I, I just think children, it's, it's an absolute no-brainer. We, we've got to give them space. It's funny, actually, because we mentioned that, didn't I, a, a game that I had where the manager was sent off. And for the last 20 minutes, they, they put us under massive yes, pressure. We hung on for the game after the manager had been sent off. Um, but going on to academies now, uh, there is pressure there for the children because parents want their children to make it. And... You know, academies are out there saying, "Oh, players come through us, and they go to these clubs, and and so on and so forth." What effect can that have on children? I mean, for I said, I haven't had any overly experience on that, <clears throat> but I mean, I we I just had one lad who was who had a trial at Bristol Rovers, and again, the, the pressure he had under that thing was thing, and you do get a lot of parents, even now with the girls' football you think if they have a few decent games they're going to be the next Lionesses um, so it's un, unrealistic pressures are being put on by parents generally thinking well the next step we're in the grassroots team it'll only be a matter of time before 
a city or ravers in Bristol will come looking for them and sign them up to their academy. Um, once it gets up to that academy, and I think James has obviously got with two lads going through a lot more experience than I have. Um, but there is an unrealistic pressure on grassroots, especially if you've got half decent players that they think they will go. Um, I'm sure we'll get onto it later. Then you are now getting these non-academies who sort of pretend that they're academies as the next stepping stone. We'll, we'll come on to that one in a yeah. bit, yeah. So, but, and then there's that added pressure there. But for the kids, most of them all think they're going to be the next Ronaldo, Messi, Jill Scott, whoever it is. So we, the, the statistic that you know is always out there, and I can't—I won't even remember what it is. But it doesn't—you don't have to have it exactly right. But the percentage of players that become one. pros is it's one was less than I think it's point, point one. Oh yeah, it's, point, it's less than point yeah. one. Under, so under, it's, it's under yeah. point one percent of the the, the number of children participating in football and the number that make it professional is is you know is 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 so minuscule really that if you think about the damage you can do to your relationship or your child's experience growing up um, through putting that pressure on and yet it's really hard to we've all probably done it I've definitely you know talked out of line and, and overly you know been overly pressurising on my kids over the years without intending to and knowing full well all of this stuff about why you shouldn't because it's such an emotive sport and it's such a part of our the fabric of our society I guess and and you know, people get really. It's the same way that you see people abusing referees that wouldn't normally behave like that. But I think football can kind of almost um, just distort people's logic sometimes. And you know, so rightly or wrongly, I think you'll get people who wouldn't normally even consider themselves to be overly pushy as parents or coaches. But in the heat of the moment, and when they're on that training pitch, uh, you know, they they will just lose themselves almost. And I think you've all, you've got, if you step back and watch yourself from a distance, most of us would probably go, "What am I doing there? Why am I, why am I berating an eight-year-old because he hasn't, you know, played one-touch football or whatever it yeah. might be?" You know. Yeah. I think we said with football now, my daughter's also doing swimming, and it's the same. When you get to that that top end, she's now doing galas and God, and you hear what's going on in this, this swimming as well, where there's fat shaming where these certain certain ages and. They've got to do this ridiculous amount of time, amount of effort that they put in, and it consumes lives. And I think again, this is specialising with football. I think with football, when we get to the academies and stuff like that, they're training three or four nights a week. And yeah, it's 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 a it huge. Takes it for their childhood. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely, can do. You can tr you can attack it in one of two ways. You can either say that it's a real privilege to have the opportunity to play football, whether it's grassroots or academy or whatever, and especially if you're a parent. Yeah, and, and, and as a parent coach let's face it 90% of the coaches and grassroots are parents as well then if you if you look at that as a privilege you're going to spend loads of time with your kids and hopefully really develop them and be involved in there but but you maintain it as part of their childhood and you keep the perspective on everything it can be a really amazing thing equally if you're treating it as you know my child if, if the impression your child gets is I have to become a professional football player or my parents aren't going to love me anymore and value me which you know, to a child's brain, if they are being shouted at and they come away and haven't had a good game, for example, that might be, you know, quite often, like you said at the beginning, one of the reasons why kids quit the game is to, probably because of that pressure. Um, I think you'd get to the end of it and as a parent, you'd really regret that, I think. So um, it's, it's, but it's just an education piece and, a, and something about perspective and, and trying to take, take, you know, grassroots football is not, professional football it's not the Champions League academy football isn't professional football it, it's, it's not it's just another version of of child football of ch ch children playing sports and growing and you have to remember that and uh, yeah it's it can be quite punishing but I think that's why you know the education is really important and the weekends at the FA do are really important and uh, and they should I think we should do more of them but it can also have damaging effect academies. And I, I'll give I'll give two examples from from my own history. Um, those who know me know I've I've run teams through before. My first team, we um, I think we were about under twelves at this time, and we were in the second division, and we were playing against Bitten. And after the game, the manager come to me and said, "I've got a player. Uh, he's been he was with me all along, but he's been released now by Bristol Rovers, and he's come back to me." Um, and he's lost all his confidence. 
so much so he's no longer good enough to get in my team. Bit we're in the first division. It was a cup game. Bit we're in the first division. He's no longer good enough to get in my team, uh, but I think he'd do well in your team. And of course, I was like, oh, that's fine. I don't mind. We'll, we'll take it. We're happy to take players. So he came to me, and and in the first couple of months, he, he struggled even in my team. You know, dropping you know, from academy to a first back to his first division, down to a second division, he he struggled. And it took a lot of work with him, just sort of reinforcing that he's a good player. He's fine. Get him back. We put him right back, which is where he played. And by the end of the season, he was sort of playing okay. Under thirteen season, he sort of made a change, put him into midfield, and he started playing well and better and better and better. And by the under fifteen season, we played. We were back by then. We were in the first division, and we're knocking this team out of the cup and everything. And they're like, "Come back!" And we're like, "No, he's <laughs> our player." But he'd been knocked. His confidence had been knocked so much by just being released by the club he loved as a boy that he'd gone from being good enough to go into academy to having to go down to a second division club mm. just because he'd lost so much confidence. It took us yeah, yeah over a year to get him back to that level of being he's that good. Yeah, And then another example, this was my second team. Um, we were, we'd, we'd gone up through the divisions again and we were second division, gone up to the first division. So we're in the first division now, he's under 15s. Uh, I've got a squad capable of winning that league. And we're five games in, we're unbeaten. And I'm, I'm not having to go up with the Rovers here, but it was them again. It tends to be Rovers tend to take teams for players from here for some reason. Took my striker, I had two strikers. One has scored 65 goals the season before, one has scored 62, which is why we were so good. They took the striker, one of my strikers away. Um, he went with them for the season and about eight games at the end of the season, they released him again. And that was it. Now, the effect on him, he, he took it quite okay, I think. and he, came, he didn't come back to us because I think a lot of the players at our team were like, well, you left, that was it. We don't want you back. But the effect on the team was, I went from a team with two 60-plus strikers capable of winning that league till we ended up sixth, I think. And it was the effect on the rest of the players on the team, taking a player who they didn't even have for a whole season. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, we'll have a look at you. Yeah, come on in, we'll have. A... And they didn't really ever want him. It was just like, oh, you look pretty good. We'll have a look. You know, and it, but it was the other fifteen players who were just absolutely hit and demoralised for a player they didn't really want. It was just they needed another player to fill the squad. And now, finally, one more. I don't know if I mentioned this in the last podcast. I've got a friend who works up at Academy in and around the Stoke region and his team under under eights were playing against the Liverpool Academy and they put two teams out and in the first game they lost 6-0 and then they play again, same team, but they won 4-1 and he said the difference was they took their one player off and that was it, one player that Liverpool took off. and. People like myself, I've been, in, I've been, I've worked for academies before. I've, I've done scouting for them years ago. You know that academies each year have got one player. They only, they only focus on one player to get through. The rest are just there to make the numbers, to make see, to give that rest of that, that one player a team to play in. So at the end of it, all those players are told, "Thank you very much, goodbye." So you've got the pressure of getting in there, all that hard work you put in, and at the end of it, you're told, see ya. And a lot of those kids at 17, 18, just give up football completely. So I, I, I don't, I don't um, disagree with some of that, but I, do, I don't also think it's as black and white as that. So I, I think it might be one player, it might be none. Like I go back to that statistic, so I look at a lot of academy, I watch probably five academy matches a week, um, or you know, two, two to five a week, depending on how many times the boys play. And sometimes you see players and you'll be, you'll be like, There's, there isn't a professional football player on the pitch, you can tell. And that's just, you know, that might be the intake. Sometimes you see two or three lads who look really good. The, the clubs, yeah, they, they have got pressure just to, to turn out um, products from their academy so they that's the reality of it that's if they don't produce players they 
they'll lose their funding. But I don't think they. I've not seen anything in my experience that says that they coach players differently within that environment. And so I think when you when you get a kid go up to an academy, it is on you as a as a family to understand the uh, not the risks you're taking, but to understand this, the the likelihood of what you're what you're embarking on, and then you you set your kind of the context of how you're going to approach it within that. Like so, like I said, I don't think either of my children will be professional football players. Not not long term, anyway. Put it that way, because there's another there's another massive drop off from players who get a contract at the end of their 18s year. After one year, another massive chunk, let's say 80 odd percent, don't get a second year. So, so you so you've got a statistic that says very few go to a professional, very few again go beyond one year, and then and and so every time you're you're cut. At that stage, it might be you might be dropped from the academy at no, uh, no, um, under eight, under fourteen, under eighteen, or you might be a first year pro and then you don't get a second year pro contract. But you've got to understand. We've got to educate families and the players on the realities, and then have these sort of plan Bs and, and everything else that you can think of. So certainly with with Theo at the moment, he's a first year scholar. He's really focused on his education, which Rovers are, are putting him through, and he's doing really well. He knows. That it's it's not going to be a likely, you know, pro contract at the end of it. I don't, I, you know, you look at the statistics of his peers in the years above him, and they gave out one last year. But that's a player who hasn't really been anywhere near the first team much. He's, he's had a little bit of involvement. Joey Barton's come out publicly and said, "I'm not interested in playing academy players," for example. So the pressure on him is such that he just has to go and he's just buying grizzled kind of uh, pros from you know the Merseyside area basically. So it's it's all about how difficult it is. But if you reframe it slightly and say, well, take everything you can out of playing at whatever level it is, so that if you are deemed, because football's just a game of opinions, basically. So it might not be that you're a worse player than someone else, but you just might not be the flavour of the coach who's making the decision. And so you always understand that you're never as bad as um, somebody tells you in football. Equally, you're never as good as people might tell you as well. So you've always got to keep that balance. Um, and then you can whatever comes, you take the best out of it. So you know, I think a lot of academy lads they might get dropped. There are good places to go and play at the next level down. There's the um, education route is really good, so it will open a lot of doors for you to be able to go and study in America on a scholarship or travel, you know, Australia um, and bits of Europe. So that's kind of how I, I, I sort of sit there with Theo and I say, look, if you don't get a, a pro contract at the end of these two years. And I'm, and I'm not telling him I don't think he's good enough. I'm trying to really support him, but I just we see the reality. So you've got to have the expectation that there's, you know, have a plan B. I think it's difficult. Maybe if you've got, and, and we do see loads of kids get released and what you do to build up their confidence is what grass, one of the reasons grassroots football exists. Yeah, but you're somebody who's been in the game a long time and you know this. How many parents of an eight-year-old kid who's thinking, I want my boys going to play for Manchester United. Push, 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 push. Yeah. Know this. Yeah, they, they the, just don't. The, the clubs. The clubs will peddle a dream that, that make it sound more realistic. I think um, it is. It, it's a little bit out of control. And like I said, I mean, you look at the, the the vast wealth that's in football, and you can't blame some families for seeing it as a as a as a way to success and to you know wealth and and to validation for their children or for them as well ego is quite a big thing I think when you look at parents who are obsessed with their children winning it's not about their children wanting to win it's about the ego of the parent um, my child's better than your child or whatever or my child's successful you've got to try and yeah it, you're right it does happen but my worry is the kind of the race to the bottom with academies now and that they're scouting kids as young as three and four and it's not even eight anymore so how do you know whether a three-year-old kid who's only been, probably been walking for about 12 months is going to be a professional football player, I don't know. But, um, yeah, it's, it's food for thought. It's yeah. Now, talking of academies, we then have the other academies. Those who say, yes, we're an academy. Come on in, just buy this, buy this, pay for that. Now, you know an academy because you don't pay for anything. And yet... These people come along, they say, we're an academy. 
Yes, join us. We're an academy. We'll get you here. We'll get you there. And I, I had a quick look online. In the Bristol area alone, there's at least six, just in the Bristol area, offering coaching and pathways into football and pathways into professional acad academy coaching. This, I mean, and again, the, the, the pressure on the children is, because now you're training, again, two, three nights a week for what you think is a way into professional football. Mark? It, it's not. <laughs> um, well, my son did it for a year at, South, at a local club. Um, and it was, it was, you can look at it as a, as a money cow for them. I think at the time when Bradley did it, he was under nines, under ten. So I think he was under nines when he, when he went for that season. Yeah. So even back then, so that's six, seven years ago, it was £30 a month we were paying for him to get there. And was the coaching any better than we got at Fry's? Yeah. Debatable, potentially. You had more children who were at a certain level who were at a level who potentially who wanted to play football. I think sometimes at grassroots you get a mixture of the lads or, and girls mm. now who want to play football and some who just want to come and mess about. So I think when you do go to those not academies, but academies, whatever they want to call themselves. I think, I think they're, they're technically called development centres, aren't they? So you, you'd, take, you'd call it a development centre. That's what they should be advertising themselves. No, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> Go on the website. They're, they are not. Yeah, that's. So you know, you're talking about the teams that play in the JPL, and and, and that that's deliberately misleading in itself. So to call it the Junior Premier League, you know, I think is is a that that entity is is poorly marketed. I, I think. But I think, you, yeah, the coaching quality in some of these places isn't great. On the other, on the on the flip side, it's very good in some. So, yeah. so there is some good coach. There's some really good coaches out in some of the development centres. It's like anything, isn't it? If you're sending your child somewhere, it's on you as a parent to to do your due diligence and check whether you're sending. You know, I know nothing about gymnastics. And my daughter wanted to do gymnastics a couple of years ago, so we had to go around and ask people, "What's a good gymnastics school?" I'm gonna have a clue what I was looking at, but I would smell a rat if a gym. <laughs> said, oh, I'm going to make your child the next Olympic gymnast and, you know, kind of would be a bit cynical about that, I think, but yeah. some people aren't. But I, the main thing that you said there, Mark, that really I think is a, is, a, is a plus side to these things is that the standard that the children are, are playing in is high, so that will naturally set a challenge for them. But totally agree, Andy, that the, um, a lot of the positioning and the marketing... And the cost that comes with it mm. is, is, is painful and there's a lot of traveling as well. So you, yeah. to play in the JPL, you might be traveling on a Saturday as, you know, from Bristol beyond, well beyond Birmingham and, and further north. And sometimes those games can be like 12, 13 nil. So you're thought, is there a lot of benefits that come out of those? Um, uh, and and there's a t you do get a bit of a tension between them and the grassroots team. And, and I think that they, the purpose of them is supposed to run alongside a grassroots team. Actually, I think it can be quite interfering with players who are trying to be part of both because they play on a Saturday and on a Sunday. So um, they are mixed in their value. I wouldn't say they're all bad, but I would 100% agree. Approach with caution would be my my advice. Find find the development centre that's got a good reputation and is going to give your kid yeah. attention and develop your child and isn't just taking the money because they'll probably have one or two that they're looking to get into academies as well well we have a we have a bad experience with one because oh, the, we, the, the the player went to this development center and then next thing we know he's leaving our club to sign on a sunday for the team run by the assistant manager of the development center we were shocked funnily enough we weren't no, i mean and they that particular manager took other teams players yeah. but where, where they have got you where with parents and children who potentially want to go down the route I would think uh, the development centres if say there's a squad of 13 14 you would think three or four you from what I can gather follow on to will end up going to a Bristol Rovers a Bristol City a Forest Green they seem to have a higher percentage of those children that do make that next step up <coughs> um so yeah I think there is a place for them um, as long as they work like I said work with the grassroots club I said a, a lot of the times it does feel as if they work 
against the grassroots clubs. So I'd, I'd give a shout out here. So I mentioned it earlier, but so our boys didn't go down the development centre route because they were lucky enough to play for the the school FA county team. So Bath and Wiltshire boys was the, uh, you had to trial and get in, but it's part of the FA's um, kind of banner of county teams basically. So schoolboy football and it's it's diminishing as from what I can understand is a lot of the county teams um, have folded over the years but, but it, it used to be a really sort of established and quite a prestigious thing and you would play for the county and there was there was no cost the, the coaching was well was world class basically so it was, it was coached by people who were uh, former head of Bristol City Academy who's gone on to coaching at Dortmund and Stuttgart and um, you know the, through, through playing for this county team the boys played the likes of Bayern Munich Inter Milan Juventus Chelsea, Everton, and and gave good accounts of themselves, and that was an amazing opportunity that I wish we had more of, because there wasn't the financial thing. As much of the focus in that program was as developing the kids off the pitch as it was on, so it was a huge focus on um, values. Values, the four values were um, respect, resilience, curiosity, and compassion, and a, a lot of what you did in that program was about going out and doing off-pitch um, things like fundraising or volunteering, travel. So they, I think Theo was six when he went to Belgium with that group without us. So it was set seven. So, so he'd done a, a four-day foreign trip without parents at the age of seven and came back like massively enriched basically through that. Uh, you won't get that in a development centre the focus will be on football and then getting someone into an academy mm. solely. So that that's the sort of downside to them. I, t- I totally agree. But there's always a tension. The sc- the kind of the, the pinching of players thing is um, is not exclusive to development centres or academies. I, I think the skullduggery in football code goes oh, is just deep rife, isn't yeah. it? And it drives me out of the wall. But um, that's, that's probably one for another podcast. Yeah, exactly. A whole a whole episode, I think, you could do on uh, the uh, backstabbing in uh, kids' football. Okay, so um, what about competition for young children in terms of when they play? Um, now the FA prohibit competitive football until you're under seven, and yet the number of posts I see under sixes team looking for matches, under six team looking for matches. It's, it's phenomenal. You know, are they starting too early? Is under sevens too early to play competitive matches even? You know, not even, you know, should they be just training still by under sevens? But you know, the under sixes, they should just be training. And yet, you know, we see them out there advertising for matches. I've seen under fives. What, matches? Yeah. Well, according to the, I mean, I, I know it came out a number of years ago because we were, I think we yeah. we were playing and we were told you cannot play games, and yet I think it's not being reinforced reinforced every year because nobody seems to know this now, and yet it is still part of the FA uh, regulations. You do not play games until you're under sevens. Well, they do, and it's it's simple as that. And as I said, I think with. Um, the, the girls now and the boys and you say and you oh this is our first game you turn up as an under eight girls or under oh we've been playing for two years mm. and you oh hello <laughs> and that there are is it a yeah probably they shouldn't be but again you look at how football is at this age no it shouldn't it should just be training and you've got the, with the girls you've got the wildcats thing from I think four to eleven year olds so you could almost have a state up to eleven is really non well in theory it's non-competitive I'm sure we can go into it that that definition is difficult isn't it I think playing a game of football can happen at any age because I used to play with my mates and they would no one organised them but they were games when we were like six seven whatever it, it it becomes competitive if a coach treats it like a competitive game so that's shouldn't happen and um, until kids are a bit older Organized and how organized it is, it has an impact on that. So, if you know, it says, Oh, it's a friendly game of football, but he's there with you know, making them do hard drilled workouts and he's giving them an absolute dressing down at the end of it, then obviously it's not friendly in the mind of the coach. Um, personally, I, th- I think playing games, you know, whether it's seven or eight or nine, it's 
grey area. We don't. Some kids are ready, but that's the age at which kids are coming to football for the first time. So you, you it's a bit hit and miss whether you're going to get anything out of a game of football for your team because you might play a game against a team whose girls have just rocked up for the first time the week before. You might win twelve nil. You've got probably very little. Your players, I should say, have probably got very little out of that game. The other team have probably got very little out of that game. So you may have been better off having a training match between your own players, you know, and, and just having an in-house seven-a-side match. You're looking for the right level of challenge and you know the right level of um, ability mixes in a game, and that's why it's such a, a lottery because we're trying to bring as many girls into the game as we can. It's, it makes it difficult, doesn't it? You might even have had a team under 12 and you might bring four new players in and that's almost like taking you a step back in terms of how ready you are to perform in a match. So I, I, I don't know if there's a, an exact answer to the right age. I, I think the stuff about the FA trying to review the formats is interesting and the formats constantly getting smaller for the ages, which I think is good. And, and that's all based on research about number of touches and the size of the area that you're playing in. So I think small games with fewer people for longer is, is good and I totally believe in that and so I think when coaching we'll always try to avoid doing a training game on a full size pitch because I want to I want to encourage more touches of the ball in tighter spaces for the girls to develop quicker reactions and and, and just to have more time on the ball and not be stood on the flanks it goes back to remembering being a Eight or nine year old like you guys, probably on an eleven aside men's football pitch, I'm getting lost, just waiting for half an hour for the ball to come out to the left wing, and then you know you get one shot and you miss, and then so you wait for another half an hour. So um, yeah, I don't know. The but calling it competitive is 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 not massively helpful for the young the younger ages. Mm. I mean, I said you just had obviously with your new team, you went to a tournament at under sevens girls. And you up against teams that had been playing regularly. Mm. Yes. Eventually, in a couple of years, who's going to be the better off? That that that's the argument's sake is, and the pressure those girls are under because they've won everything, you know, because they've been playing two years against a team that's not played. The, obviously, the gap will narrow, and that pressure that those, it's difficult. I think I'm with James. I, I think, think we're almost in that boat, aren't we, with our girls? Yeah. To, to an extent, we start. We we got a group together very early. And we're already now yeah, starting to see the teams that started later than us are catching up, yeah. and that's yeah. naturally it's, what happens. It's that balance. I mean, and getting older, more than so now you get into the under sevens, upwards certainly in Bristol, and now with the girls, the under eights, it's non-competitive. They say it's non-competitive. It's um, no results are shown and stuff like that. And yet, under sevens for the boys and under eights for the girls, and we're going through it now with the under nine girls. We're in a cup competition. Well, by definition, it's competitive. Yes, but the league allow uh, one cup competition for the under sevens and under eights. I think two, it's two no. for the nines. Two, two for the under eights. Uh, two for the under eights. And the under it? sevens, no? An autumn cup and a summer, a spring cup. Okay, and then two for the older, then three yeah. for the older again. They allow a certain number of, sort of but, um, competitive. But, but, but does that, does, is, is it the fact that it's a cup competition that brings... Uh, any change in the way the players perceive it or is it the way coaches frame that to the players before and, a game and, and, it's, if you yeah. go out and go it's a cup competition we've got to go out and win it well obviously they're yeah, going to feel, feel stress you don't even have to tell them do you I think you just go out and play the game yeah. I might sound just I might be too cynical and grizzled and been around too long but I don't care I don't care if our under nines win a game or lose a game I don't care and and I'd want them to win, but honestly, for the for the duration of the game, before, middle, and after the game, I don't want to. I don't want them to know. I, I care at all. I only want them to know that I care about them doing their yeah. best and playing well and and learning something from it. And I think with grassroots, one of the main things, and I think for our boys, and, and it's you know, a, a life skill. In life, you win, lose, and draw. It goes evenly for you. And that's as an important lesson for them as well. It, it is about the win and lose. It, it's not all win, win, win. Life's not like that as well. If, losing a game that's of football isn't actually losing it. You, you just it's learning, isn't it? Yeah. So you win or you learn in a game that's of football, and just go okay. You know, you, it's quite useful to say I've lost against a particular team, 
what do we use that to um, set ourselves a target and we'll play them again next year and see if we can close the gap a little bit Um, there's so many factors that affect the result of a game that are out of the control of the players and out of the control of you as a coach so it might be a bad refereeing decision Um, it might be that a load of your players are ill it could be any number of things so to actually put too much stock on it at this age is just bizarre. No one's getting fired. No one's uh, no. no one will remember you if you you know if you you roll out the trophy that you want at under nines um, as a coach. So, so you say, but you say it's a life skill. Yeah. So why not then advertise the results? Let them know they've won, they've lost. I mean, I was reading somewhere that in Spain they play competitive games from under six onwards. They advertise the results. And it doesn't seem to have harmed them having I won the World Cup and two Euros no. recently. Um, uh, but you know, again, how many is, do it, you lose? is it our responsibility as adults to educate children on how to win and lose gracefully? I, I think yeah. it is in a degree. I mean, advertise again, unfortunately, if it's being advertised, you know, if you're playing for a team that's losing 20 0 every week. At the younger ages, it's not so bad. I can guarantee once they get to secondary school, they'll have the Mickey taken out of them. And we've not seen that. So again, I think if you're in a t- and you're losing twenty nil and that's being advertised, there will be certain parents to say, "Well, I don't want my child associated with that club or that team," and we'll move them away and stuff like that. So, <clears throat> but surely that there that is on the league, and I think we could do a whole podcast on the deficiencies of some leagues we enter, where it clearly after two weeks that team are in the wrong league because they've entered and players have left yeah, and it's like exactly. can, can we move down no, no sorry you can't yeah. so we could yeah we could go into great depths about the the administration of the the local leagues you're right because if your team's losing 20 nil every week you're you're playing the wrong at the wrong level there will be somewhere where you can play a game of football where the result will be closer you might still lose every game and if that's the case, you'd probably look at it and go, you're probably providing football to kids who have not been given a chance to play football anywhere else. So why don't you frame what you're doing in, 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 positively from, from that respect? Because that's the other thing. There are kids out there who just aren't very sporty. They're not very athletic. And if there isn't somewhere that allows them to still go and participate... Then they, they then they fall out of the sport altogether, yeah. and uh, and and that's something I think we owe we owe everybody a chance to play, um, you know, and, and they might not mind as much as you think. It might get a Mickey taken out of them, um, but I think you have to publish the results because, like you said, losing a game is part of life, and actually you can't shield people from that forever. We have to introduce them to dealing with setbacks. I think, like I said, I think the responsibility must fall on the leagues to to um, intervene earlier. And I, I'll take an example from our team. We, I think, were close to folding as under-11s as we were put into a division correctly. And then a week before the start of the season, we lost arguably our best player. A week into that season, we lost arguably our next most creative player and we spent the next 10-12 weeks losing by 5-6-7 goals and we, we got to one game, I think it was Almondsbury, and we turned up with the bare 11 and luckily it was a very strong bare 11 and I heard that three of them, their parents had just managed to get them there and as it turned out we, we changed formations and did all sorts of things and actually we, we drew with them and it was a really good game and that was yeah. kind of a bit of a turning point but what the league should have done is we you know I'd actually said we, you know, we're in the wrong division and it was like no you're too late yeah I mean, they really. I mean we've got within the girls section of Fies we've got one team that has been in the top division for two years they've, I don't think they've won a game and most games they're losing 10 and that's and we're still two years in trying to get them to go out of this top division. Well, that's putting pressure on the girls. Well, they're, they're close to folding. Yeah. They, they have, uh, they've, they've had enough. They don't want to, you know, it's all right maybe in the spring and so, but in December, January, right, okay, we're away to whoever. It's a 45-minute drive there, 45-minute drive back. We're going to lose 10-0 plus. Yeah, very, what, very hard to motivate what's the, the point in going there it's, it's unfair After pressure on years. the girls it's also unfair pressure on, on the parents who then got to deal with the fallout of upset children yeah. all because 
leagues are not doing and, well with the, their jobs properly. And the coaches that are volunteers work full time, well, they are getting messages from parents. So this, we've done this now for eighteen months. We've, we're sacrificing our weekends. What you and they blame the coaches. They blame. And we've, as a club, we have asked the league for almost two years. They need to go down. They've told us, and there's no guarantee that they will look into it for next season. I mean, I'm 99% hopefully that they will go down, but it might be too late. They might have gone. We are on the, they are like that. And at the moment, we've, they've got, it's nine aside. They've probably got nine to ten girls, which isn't enough to go into a new season, so we need to recruit. And if we don't, there'll be nine to ten girls. And at the moment, the FA and all the things about bringing girls on to play football, that potentially who want to play football won't have a club. They won't have a team. Yeah, yeah, it's very difficult. I think the league systems for grassroots just hampers you doing what's best for for kids. Basically, I kind of get it because you got to have some integrity. I think in in some of the ways that you can't move players up and down, for example, willy nilly, because you'll just have people abusing that sort of system. But yeah, everyone's experience is probably the same as probably people if they listen to this saying, yeah, I've. I've felt it as well so yeah, that's if you can see from league results clearly happening it, it needs to happen then the league needs to take a step in because the, the pressure on those children as well and I get it from the league when you speak to the league they're all volunteers oh um, yeah it's a logistical it, nightmare I think running a, running I mean, a football it, league but and if you set up a t- you know games for 6-8 and one team says that we need to go down and then they've got a reason. I don't know how that will work. Whether then this is where you could then argue with the pro clubs and stuff that they need to get a bit more involved with this. If they want to keep children involved. Well, I think, I think coaches can be... You've got to, got to be open to thinking outside the box and doing what's right for your kids and arranging your own programming games if yeah. you want. So we, we held off entering a Colts team at Canesham Town into the league for ages because they weren't ready for even... Div 5 or Div 6 yeah. whatever the bottom division was so we just organised friendlies where we said by the way if this because an example would be that the league won't let you put on extra players for example yeah. if your team is losing 10-0 simply let the team losing 10-0 put on two extra players to level up the, the challenge or whatever it is if they've got subs on the bench if you arrange a friendly you can do that yourself you can arrange a friendly football festival and invite four clubs that you know play the same ethos of football and have broadly a better challenge. You might have to work creatively to do that. You might have to say to two different clubs, can you can you release six of your um, developing players to form a team to play against my team of developing players, or we'll do like a football festival. But we should be you should have the freedom to be a bit more creative as a football coach and a facilitator of football, so that you can kind of give the kids a decent um, a decent experience and yeah. a decent sort of setting to do it. And the league's just really another very it's rigid, rigid. They, they will find you oh yeah if you I think not the Bristol League and this is when Covid was going on how leagues can be rigid as well is that they said they said to what well, you can't cancel a game you know you had players injured and stuff so they wouldn't let them cancel it and so they played the game with eight or nine got absolutely battered and he still got a fight because he didn't feel enough players during so, Covid during, well, and it was just insane. like global it was, pandemic can't put a team out that's a fine that's a fine so you put a team out but you didn't have enough players you got and then they still find them I mean Unreal. there has to be some sort of common sense and ground I mean the, the leagues again they're cancel games for left right and centre you know you can't cancel DOV and stuff like this without getting written proof I don't think they understand that some it's everybody's working nine till five and extra now you've got to go to schools to get so you can prove that the game needs to be cancelled and stuff like that and it's, it's yeah. too much and it's it said and it t- take I think it just needs modernising doesn't it yeah. the administration of grassroots football needs modernising maybe the FA could help out there a little bit I think they, they tend to have a bit of a guidance sort of policy with with the league sort of set up and they haven't I mean it was the whole thing is you had to file your scores by paper didn't you up until even a couple of years ago you couldn't email or the, yeah basic thing, modern technology that would have made everyone's life easier but, it yeah. was, but, but and again with say the girls we got fined I think it was about two three and over the because the, they've got this lovely app now you put the thing but it doesn't reg, it didn't register the whole thing 
and you kept putting it, it put pen and so we got the fines and he said well we're doing it but your thesis yeah we know the system's not working we're still going to find you because you've not done it properly I mean he was thinking well hang on a minute <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all, all felt the, uh, the so, heavy handed bureaucracy so, so going back to the original thing of the competitive you know mm. the girls being in the right league and playing right football you said it is too rigid there has to be some bit of fluidity um, in this and a bit of common sense and we've gone to again this the girls team that are struggling we go to the opposition now we say to begin with like you can have a 10-0 win we put that as the score before we even play it and hopefully we'll play some friendly so you can play more of your girls and just be a more competitive game and you'll be surprised how many men nah we're going to go with our strongest because we think we can get more goals than that yeah even though the league has said what the league has goal difference has nothing all the way through mm. in the girls football round here it doesn't matter even at under 16s under 18s the goal difference is irrelevant and yet the amount I think you'll find that's a grassroots thing that's not yeah, just girls yeah, yeah I'm not sure yeah the boys. No, goal difference is not allowed to count yeah which is an that. excellent thing yeah it is just well I mean once you get past Seven or eight, the game is over, and the, ten. And the, the, it's the mercy rule at ten. But but I, I would say that before you get to ten, yeah. it, in the minds of the players, the game is gone basically. Yeah, but and and then the team that's winning seven or eight nil is getting very little return out of that game mm. if if it's that easy for them, and the team that's losing that that much as well has gone beyond what you know. You want to have a challenge for your players. You don't want to have uh, trying to describe that. The, the sweet spot diagram that basically says that if something's too easy, you know you're you're not getting anything out of it. If it's too hard, you're not getting out of it. But there's this little sweet spot around the middle, really, where you want to be uncomfortable but achievable, and that's how you should manage every game of football. And again, like I sort of said earlier, I don't care if we win or lose. I don't really care what the league says either. I would always step into a game of football and say, this is getting nothing out of it to the other managers. Fortunately, people's attitudes are. Yeah, but you know, coaches are brilliant. I'd love to win thirteen 0 every game, and and then. Hey, I must say that's why, I, I, you know, we we've had it. Both, I've had it both ways where I've had been in a team where we've lost twenty eight one, and we've had it with the girls. I think where we've won a game twenty nil, and even and you're doing everything to stop because I hate them. I think once it gets personally, I think once it gets past five, it's. Ridiculous. Well, it's it's funny. I mean, I, I don't know if one for, I don't know if the listeners are aware, and the opposition managers are aware of the mercy rule, which is at ten nil, they have the right to say that's it, game over. Yeah. Aware, uh, uh, which is interesting because you don't want to stop playing football either. Again, it's do game well, time. well you, you 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 don't, but the children on the pitch. No, that's why, that's why I, I don't want the children to, to not, not play football because it could be 10 nil after five minutes yeah. in which case you go right finish it, it I, what about do they want to stand here, there, here's, here's, here's a shout uh, for every goal you score over a five nil gap you have to take a player off or the other player can put a player yeah. on so if you go six nil up the player the team losing six nil put an extra player on if it goes back to five that, yeah, See, we, that. we used to do that we, we, and I've, when we, we were younger we used to, that, and we used to tried, do that I've tried it three times this season with the girls and every time, and I've been now been informed that they find it insulting that you said that we'll do that. Opposition managers have said, no, don't want to do it. And then spoken to them after, what? we find that offensive that you're asking us to. Why don't you say it's not for your benefit, it's for, it's for, my, it's for my team's benefit, it's for my, for my girl's benefit, because yeah. they're not getting anything out of this game. And then you take you take the pride out of it. Because if they find it offensive, they're only finding it offensive to their ego. I don't care how offensive you find it. you got... <laughs> Kids on the pitch being demoralised. I don't care how it affects you. But how can you affect what the other team does? I mean, I, no, I, you, I can't, agree. I, I, you can't. Unfortunately, you can't. But I can remember our team. We've done that a number of times, and the yeah. teams used to take us up on it. Yeah. We get three or four up, and we say we're happy if you want to put another player on, and they used to do it, and it makes it a lot more competitive. So an- another excellent thing I've seen done, which is less, um, perhaps less insulting to someone's ego, maybe is, uh, and this is from the county team they were brilliant at doing stuff like this they just say why don't we why don't we call the game here if it's at 10 nil after 30 minutes but we'll play the second half we'll play the rest of the game we'll mix the two teams together and you'd be amazed at how players love this you go right you girls or boys whatever the team is 
we're going to take a mix of, of both and they can do rock paper scissors or however they want to pick the teams or you know just like playground football but you end up with your two teams completely mixed together so you've got some strong and some weak playing alongside kids that don't know each other so you get a real good social return out of it as well and then they just start playing again and then they're still playing football and you're and suddenly you've mixed all of these kids together and they're starting to so the abilities and the, the matching is the same obviously if it's a league match this is where all these ridiculously rigid rules oh, prevent you from doing stuff like yeah. that but but I've seen some brilliant things where people have finished a game like that and a game that was going nowhere because it was just so one-sided has suddenly become oh it's really competitive kids have really enjoyed meeting some new kids from other teams kids have learned stuff by playing with other kids who they don't know um, yeah, I'm sure you can league match because most most of these days don't have referees we don't have referees no. talk over the manager you've won the game I'll give you that Give have some more goals for your charge let's do this most you can and I think the leagues is at, certainly at the young age are far too rigid I mean I think we've within our under nines we've got 20 21 girls that can play I can only register 14 there's 7 then I mean, we're lucky. We do find games for them, but you have you know, the league. Now you can only register fourteen, mm. and that oh god. So they do have to be more flexible. And again, like you said, I think it is to have game time and playing competitive games because nobody gets anything from a one-sided game, and you will lose girls, boys, even parents will take them away. I mean, I've heard parents who played games, and they said after a couple of games, well, we know that that child, are, you know, that football's not for you, and we'll go away. And the, the child at seven hasn't had a say. The mum or dad has said, "Well, look at it. You, you, yeah, you're not good as X, Y, Z." Again, uh, how you position what you're doing. Part of the reason is you might say, oh, "This team isn't here to go and win trophies or turn out any professional players." The, what's success for your team you should define that really early and clubs have philosophies and ethoses that they should stick to um, if football for all is, is you know a common one uh, certain clubs not naming any names bitten <clears throat> you know <laughs> play to win and poach players off other teams and stuff like that a disclaimer they, that was a long time ago might have just been one coach but you, if you set that out and say the main aim of our team is to have as many of these girls who've joined us at under eight still playing when they're 16, 17 or 18 and that'll be success for us then and if they are by the way that's an amazing achievement yeah. because like you said there's all those factors that push kids away from the game and it's not always pressure and it's not always about coaches not being supportive or parents not being supportive sometimes mm -hmm. it's just that adolescent thing where you're into boys, girls going out. Well, the very last one on the list is, yeah, not as in football anymore. You know, we, we lost a player to skateboarding. We, uh, lost boxing. A, boxing, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. I'm just trying to think, in our team, who started at under seven to playing now, four? I think it's four, maybe five. Four or five? Play for, play for us. There's still, there's still others playing, playing other teams. Who've, who've gone on, in most cases, they think they've gone on to better when Potentially, but that's a different. That's, a, that's, that's, an, that's a different argument. Some of them are still playing, but they're, playing, they're playing, playing for yeah. us. I think, yeah, four, maybe five. So, like, like James said, I think with our team, the the girls, if I think if we've got seven or eight, I think it's got to be around that number that are there at under sixteens, is a success. That's a successful team. They might go and not win a trophy in that time. But if you stuck them through and you kept them through that period, I think that's a successful team. And I think there are teams, clubs, individuals that that goes away from the essence that the winning and the potential <clears throat> that they see successful, you know, professional careers or whatever is the main driving force. And if you've got to be honest, at grassroots level, it shouldn't be. In my, it, it's you want. The, the main aim, as I look at it, as one of the grassroots for the boys and the girls, is to give them choice of being a part of a team, which is vital when they grow older, and well-rounded individuals, like I said, that they can take defeats, victory, and this being part of a group and social aspects. That's teaching things like you know, yeah, respect, yeah, uh, compassion, you know, all those types of things, uh, make them good people as well. Is there's so many things important about being part of a team sport that, that are really 
far outweigh the results. But you, you can also coach a team brilliantly and not win anything because you might have brought a team from the very bottom level of the, the capability of a sport and moved them forward more than a coach who just poaches the best players, does nothing to improve them, but then wins a load of stuff off the back of effectively just you know forming a, a dream team. So I think they have that measure in... Um, schools now don't they it's it, the, the UCAS not the UCAS the um, Ofsted stuff is about how far you've moved individual pupils forward from where they were as a measure of how good the school is rather than your absolute exam results because you might have just inherited a load of intelligent kids so I think as a, as a club if we set that metric as ours as in can we keep the largest number of players from the beginning to the end rather than how much we win and what we win and we communicated that from the start so if you come here it's about keeping everyone together it's not about winning then I think I think we'd be a much more successful club yeah. not on the pitch necessarily but as a as a community yeah Fries is a very successful club by that measure because yes. if you look at the amount of fundraising you do if you look at the number of times you're in the local papers doing amazing work with hundreds of girls the number of the number of events Mark you guys have got 50 to 100 girls to a professional football match for example is, is, is incredible so what you're doing for grow, growing the particip participation in the sport is amazing very very successful community grassroots football club and um, arguably doing much better things than say a club that's only got one team but they go and win the first division and a couple of trophies because they might have handpicked handpicked the right people to do that so. and I think I think that's key isn't it it's keeping it fun for everyone which fun enough is on the list as one of the main reasons people quit or children quit sport is it's no longer fun and um, I think on that note we will call it a day um, I'd like to thank James for his contribution Mark as always Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's good. Andrew, thanks, Andrew. Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, thank you, listeners, and uh, hope you enjoyed that. And if you did, feel free to uh, drop us a mention and uh, like and subscribe. Drop us a message on the email. Any uh, any thoughts? And also, if you have any thoughts for future episodes, this is me, Andy, uh, saying good night, and Mark, and James. You've been listening to a. We haven't got a clue what we're doing production, produced and edited by Andy Glover. <laughs>